If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today at our award-winning and fully accredited treatment centers on the Eastern Shore and in Southern Maryland, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. We're going to be learning in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, the only piece in Hilchos Nedarim. This is Parak Yud Gimel, Halacha Chaf Beis. It's a short piece, but a very brilliant piece. And as we'll see at the end, one of the better known pieces in the Sefer. The issue that Rab Chaim's dealing with is when a wife makes a vow, so the husband has the option to either do hakama, he could establish it, and the vow will remain in effect, or he could do hafara, he could unravel it and remove her obligation to fulfill that vow. And Rab Chaim's going to point to a fundamental difference between those two options in addition to the obvious one as to whether or not she has to keep the vow. The Rambam says, Let's say the husband does something nonsensical and he says it's both established and unraveled. He does both hakama and hafara at the same time. So the Rambam holds that that vow is in effect, the hakama takes effect. Now, this case is a question in the Gemara Nidarim and Tes. What happens if you do Hakama and Afar at the same time? And the Gemara answers it from a statement of Rabbah that Kol She'eno B'Zachar Zafilu B'Vas Achas Eno. Any two things which could not be done one after the other cannot be done at the same time either. So the implication of the Gemara is that since Hakama and Hafara cannot be done one after the other, they also cannot be done at the same time. In which case, the Gemara's answer to the question seems to be that if the husband did both Hakama and Hafara at the same time, neither of them takes effect. So it's a neutral situation. There is no Hakama and there is no Hafara. Because that's the meaning of Rabbah's halacha, that if the two things couldn't be done side by side, then they can't be done at the same time. That's how the Gemara in Kiddushin, and Daphne and Aleph, and other places understands it. So the Ran already points this out, that the conclusion of the Gemara in Nidarim seems to be that neither the Hakama nor the Hafara are going to take effect. And that goes against the Rambam, who says that the Hakama is going to take effect. So the Ran asks this question that that seems to go against the conclusion of the Gemara that the Hakama is also not effective. So Rab Chaim says that there's a fundamental difference between the concept of Hakama and the concept of Hafara. The reason why Hafara doesn't work after Hakama is because that's the essential din of Hakama once the husband says that he agrees and affirms this vow. So implicit in the Hakama is that he can no longer change his mind and then go ahead and be Mayfair. So the reason there's no Hafara after the Hakama is because that would contradict the very essence of Hakama, which is that once the husband agrees to it, he can't change his mind. But the essence of Hafara is different. It's not that the husband sets in stone that he's Mayfair the vow and he removed it, but rather once he's Mayfair the vow, the vow disappears 
and now the vow is gone. So the woman doesn't have to follow it anymore. So the reason the husband can't do kiyum after hafara, he can't change his mind once he's Mayfair, is not that the hafara is set in stone. Theoretically, he could change his mind and then say later on that he's Mikhaim the vow and he wants the vow to take effect. But there's no vow left to be Mikhaim. Once he does hafara, the vow itself for all practical purposes is removed and there's nothing anymore for the husband to be Mikhaim or for the wife to have to follow. So the essential way that Hakama and Hafara work are different. Hakama is that the husband sets in stone that he's agreeing to the vow and any change of his mind would go against his original Hakama. But Hafara is that he's removing the vow, so that's it, it's gone. He could change his mind, but there would be no vow left once he does so. Now, based on this, says Rab Chaim, that Hakama contradicts Hafara. The very essence of Hakama means that it goes against the concept of Hafara. But Hafara does not contradict Hakama. Hafara is not saying that the husband can't do Hakama. It's just a practical problem. Once he does Hafara, then there is no more vow left for him to do Hakama on. But there is no open contradiction from Hafara against the Hakama. And Rab Chaim even says as a thought experiment that theoretically, let's say we could imagine there would still be a vow after the Hafara, then the husband could do Hakama on that. So Hafara is not going against the Hakama, it's just changing the situation in such a way that Hakama can't take effect. So that's the first proposition here. Now, in addition, Rab Chaim says that the whole halacha of Koshen if it couldn't be done separately, it can't be done together, that only applies when there's some halachic reason why these two things can't coexist. So once we see they can't be done separately, meaning because of halacha, there's some contradiction between the two, then they also can't be done together. But if there's no halachic contradiction between the two, it's just practically there isn't a situation where the two of them can coexist, then that would not preclude them taking effect together. So the halacha of kol she'en only applies when there's some fundamental halachic contradiction between the two, not if it's just a practical problem. Now, applying this back into our case, says Rab Chaim, if a husband does hafara and then he does hakama, there is no contradiction between the two of them. It's just practical. Since he did hafara, there's no more vow on which he can do hakama. So since it's practical and not a fundamental halachic contradiction, therefore we don't apply the rule of kol she'en to the case of hafara and then hakama which is very different than the other case of Hakama and then Hafara, where there is a fundamental contradiction. The Hakama totally contradicts the Hafara, which follows it. That's a halachic problem. So therefore, we would apply Kol and they can't be done together. So there's a key distinction when it comes to applying Kol to the case of whether the Hakama came before the Hafara or the Hafara came before the Hakama. It only applies in the case where the Hafara followed the Hakama because that's a halachic problem in applying those two together. So that explains the Rambam's Psak. When the Gemara said that we apply the rule of Kol it was applying it to the Hafara because once there was Hakama, so then the Hafara can't take effect. 
but it wasn't applying it to the Hakama because once there was Hafara, the Hakama still theoretically could take effect. And furthermore, Rab Chaim says that in this situation itself, when the Hakama and the Hafara are done at the same time, the Hakama is contradicting the Hafara because once the husband affirmed the vow, then he can't be Mayfair the vow. So the Hafara is being contradicted. But the Hafara is not contradicting the Hakama. All the husband is saying is at this moment that he's Mayfair the vow, but if there's still a vow, then the Hakama could take effect. So since the Hakama is not being contradicted, it makes sense that the Hakama would take effect. So that's where the Rambam got this approach from, that if the Hakama and the Hafara are done at the same time, the Hakama does take effect, the Hafara does not take effect, but it's not a neutral situation where both of them are cancelled out. And when the Gemara in Nidarim applied the rule of Kol it only meant to apply that to the case of Hafara. But that is not true of the Hakama, and that's why the Hakama is effective. Now, Rab Chaim says there are two approaches to understanding the whole concept of Kol Sheinu Achas Eino. Does it mean that any two things which can't take effect one after the other, so there's something withholding both of them from being effective together, then they also can't take effect at the same time? Or does it mean something more specific, that when the two things are actively contradicting each other and stopping one from the other taking effect, then they can't take effect at the same time? But if it's not that inherently the two of them contradict each other, it's just some random reason why the two of them can't take effect one after the other. So then we don't apply this rule. And if they come at the same time, then we just follow the stringency. So Rab Chaim points out that the whole approach he's developing to explain the Rambam is going to depend on this issue. Because if we say that no matter what, any time that two things can't take effect one after the other, then they also can't take effect at the same time. So then that's also going to apply to Hafara followed by Hakama. Even though the original Hafara doesn't negate inherently the Hakama that comes afterwards, but still practically, since these two things can't coexist, one after the other, so then they also can't take effect at the same time. It's only if we go with the second approach that the Kol has to be that inherently the two of them contradict each other. It's not just a random reason why they can't be one after the other. So in that situation, we would apply so then it's true to say Rab Chaim's idea that that wouldn't apply to Hafara followed by Hakama because the Hafara is not inherently contradicting the Hakama. So this approach to explain the Rambam only works according to the second way of understanding the more limited way. But if we have the more expansive definition that anything which even practically two things can't follow one after the other... So if that's the rule of Kol Shein then it should apply even though there's a distinction between Hakama after Hafara, which is different than Hafara after Hakama. So says Rab Chaim, that's exactly what the Rambam and the Ran are disagreeing about. The Rambam holds the more limited definition that Kol as a principle only applies when the two things inherently contradict each other. So that principle would only apply 
to Hakama and then Hafara, because the Hakama contradicts the Hafara, but it would not apply to Hafara and then Hakama, because the Hafara doesn't contradict the Hakama. So according to the Rambam, it becomes very important, this conceptual distinction between Hakama and Hafara, and which one contradicts each other, because we're only going to apply Kol in a case where there's an inherent contradiction. And that's why the Rambam in conclusion says that the Hakama is going to take effect because it's not contradicted by anything. But the Ran has the more expansive application of Kol that it's not only where there's an inherent contradiction. Even if the two can't coexist for an external reason, so long as two things can't go one after the other, they also can't take effect at the same time. So that's why he applies it. And even in the case of Hafara and then Hakama, even though theoretically those two could follow one after the next, but since practically it's not going to be able to be done because the hafara removes any vow, says the Ran, it can't take effect at the same time either. So hakama and hafara at the same time is going to be a draw. They cancel each other out and the vow remains neutral. So the Ran doesn't disagree with the Rambam's conceptual distinction between Hakama and Hafara, but he rather disagrees with his more limited application of the rule of Kol Sheinu So that's Reb Chaim's piece. Again, it's a very short but very brilliant piece. And the key conceptual point is this distinction between Hakama and Hafara. That Hakama in its essence is that the husband is saying he accepts the vow and can never change his mind. Whereas Hafara is just saying that at the moment he doesn't accept the vow, he might change his mind in the future, but the way Hafara works is that it removes the vow from the situation, so in the future there's nothing for the husband to accept. And this leads to Rab Chaim's secondary point, which is that Hakama essentially contradicts Hafara, but Hafara practically contradicts Hakama, but it doesn't inherently contradict Hakama. In addition, Rab Chaim has a conceptual discussion of the principle of Kol if two things can't be one after the other, then they can't be at the same time. And he wants to understand, is that because the two of them essentially contradict each other? Or is it even if practically there isn't a situation where the two of these things could take effect one after the next? And he says that's a machlokus between the Rambam and the Ran. Now, this piece had an interesting little historical postscript. In 1925, Reb Moshe Benyamin Yamin who was in the U.S., put out a Torah journal called Migdal Torah, and a bunch of the Rabbanim in the U.S. participated, including one Reb Chaim Yitzchak Blach, who was at the time the rabbi in Jersey City. But he was an old Valozhin Talmud. He had studied under Reb Chaim, and Reb Chaim was a young Rosh Hashiva in Valozhin. So Rabbi Blach submitted an article, and this was later republished with some additions from another article that he wrote on this topic in his own Sefer, which was called Divrei Chiba, which was an acronym for his name, Chaim Yitzchak Blach HaKohen, Ches Yud Beis Hey. And in his article, in his Sefer, he basically says the same approach as Rab Chaim to answer this Rambam. And he bases it on a Tosus in Gi'inan Mimbezim at Aleph, Dibamaschal Hadam or Chetzi Chetzi, where Tosus basically says the same thing, that we only apply Kol in a case where the first one is actively withholding the second one from taking effect. But otherwise, it doesn't apply. So based on that, he says the same idea, that Hafara doesn't actively negate Hakama, whereas Hakama actively negates Hafara. So another one of the early 20th century American rabbanim, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Zeltzer, who had served as a rabbi in Bangor, Maine, and in Patterson, and Minneapolis, and Bridgeport, 
So he wrote a response to Rabbi Bloch in the Torah journal Hapardes, and then Rabbi Bloch wrote back to him. And we'll get into the questions Rabbi Zeltzer raises in a minute. Rabbi Zeltzer collected this material in his own sefer, Vizosli Yehuda, in Yoridea, in Simanim Chavdalet, and Chavhei. So at the end of Simen Chavhei, he quotes a letter that he got from Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, Rabbi Chaim's son, and he writes to him that he's reading in the Hapardes this whole back and forth between him and Rabbi Bloch about this approach to explain the Rambam, and they're both acting like this is a new idea, and Rabbi Moshe says, Anochi mispale umishtomem, he says, I'm in shock. From your whole discussion, it sounds like this is a new idea that no one ever said before. When in fact, this idea is well known and famous. In the mouths of everyone who studies Torah and in all of the yeshivas, everybody knows this approach. In the name of my father, Rab Chaim. So Rab Moshe points out that they're having this whole conversation, but what Rabbi Bloch had said was really Reb Chaim's approach. If I had to speculate, I would say maybe he had heard it from Reb Chaim. Hi, I'm Flo from Progressive. Being a baseball fanatic like me can be stressful. It's not all sports points and touchdowns. So Progressive is going to help you take your mind off your team for a moment. Instead of thinking about how they missed that goal point score, think about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive letting you choose coverage options based on your budget. Unlike your team that missed the end zone net area. Well, anyway, hope this distraction about Progressive's Name Your Price tool was helpful. It sure kept me from thinking about all those penalty balls. Yay, sports! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Him in Valozhin, or at some point earlier, and then he forgot where he heard it and thought he came up with it. I've certainly done that enough myself. Anyways, in the back of the Or Olam edition, they have a note and they pick up on Reb Moshe's claim that this is a famous piece. And they say that this was one of the better known pieces of Rab Chaim in his lifetime before the Sefer came out, which was not until 18 years after Rab Chaim died. So not all the pieces were known, obviously, but this one seems to have gotten around and it was quoted in the Sefer Shemen Rokeach on Bechoros. It's quoted in the Torah journal Hamas safe in 1913. And the Dvar Ram, who was the last Rav of Kovna, he was also the son of Reb Zalman Sender Kahana Shapiro, who was a cousin of Reb Chaim and a student of the Beis HaLevi. And his son, Reb Avram Dovber Kahana Shapiro, who wrote the Dvar Ram, was a student in Valozhin when Reb Chaim was there. So he was also part of the family and part of Reb Chaim's circle. So in Chela Gimel Simen Yud, in a footnote, he quotes, this from Rab Chaim, and in the Sefer Azikaron of Rab Chaim Shmulevitz, they also quote that Rab Chaim Shmulevitz was aware of this. So this seems to have been an idea that was circulating in Rab Chaim's name in the European yeshivas, even before the book came out. Now, they also point out over there that the, these earlier versions of Rab Chaim, most of them, if not all of them, make it dependent on that Tosos and Gi'in, on Membez that we mentioned. But uh, they quote that Rab Chaim's son, Rab Velvel, and uh, also Rab Chatzka Abramsky, who uh, had learned under Rab Chaim. So they both differentiate and they say that Rab Chaim's idea is independent of that Tosos. So there seems to have been two versions of this idea, an earlier one where maybe Rab Chaim had quoted that Tosos, and uh, then later on he amended it and it became independent of that. Now, there's two major problems which later Achronim discuss regarding Rab Chaim's idea, and both of them are in the Chazonisha's comments on Rab Chaim. The first is that this whole notion, Rab Chaim says, that we only apply the rule of Kol in a case where they're inherently contradicting each other, not when they just practically can't be following each other. 
So the Chazonish points this out in his comments, and the Dvar Avram in a tshuva later in Chela Gimel, Simon Lamed Beis, quotes this question from his brother, and Rabbi Zeltzer is also discussing this issue. Uh, they point out that the Gemara applies that principle to the case of Meiser Behema. So the tenth animal is Meiser on the first nine, but what happens if number 10 and 11 walk out at the same time? So the Gemara says, since number 11 couldn't be Meiser, they can't be one after the other Meiser, so they also can't be Meiser at the same time. But that's not a case where they're inherently contradicting each other. In other words, the 10th animal being Meiser does not inherently contradict the 11th being Meiser. It's just that once the 10th is Meiser, so then the 11th has nothing to be Meiser on. So why would the Gemara, according to Rab Chaim, apply the rule of Kol Zacharzet to that case when it's just a practical matter? And the Chazonish also adds a similar question that the Gemara applies the rule of Kol Zacharzet to a case where a man is Mekadesh, he tries to marry two sisters at the same time. So he wouldn't be able to marry one sister and then the second one, only the first marriage would take effect. So the Gemara says that he can't marry both of them at the same time either. So the Chazonish also says that in that case, it's practical. Once he married the first sister, so then it's prohibited. There is no kiddushin that takes effect on the second sister. But it's not that the marriage to the first sister inherently contradicts marrying the second sister. Now, in the back of the Or Olam edition, they quote this from Rav Moshe Shmuel Shapiro, who's part of the whole brisker circles, that the, he said the second question from the case of two sisters is not all that strong because you could say that it is an inherent contradiction. In other words, the marriage to the first sister is what inherently contradicts the ability to marry the second sister. So it's not clear that that is a case of a practical inability. The fact that the second marriage doesn't take effect might be more inherent and that the first marriage precludes it. Uh, but what about the situation from Meiser? So Reb Moshe Soloveitchik in his letter to Rabbi Zeltzer, and this idea is also quoted in the name of Rab Chaim's other son, Rab Velvel, the Briskarov, and Rab Moshe Shmuel Shapiro in his uh, marginal notes that are quoted in the Or Olam, and the Dvar Avram also says something uh, along these lines. Uh, but they all say that it's not true that Meiser is just a practical limitation, meaning it's this 11th just can't be Meiser, because there's nothing for it to be Meiser on, but it's more. In other words, that is true, that there's nothing for the 11th to be Meiser on because there's no animals from which it's going to be the tithe, but it's more than that, that the Torah said that you can take a tenth animal as Meiser. So once you've done that, that's the Torah's shiur that now inherently precludes the 11th from becoming Meiser. So that would be similar to Rab Chaim's idea that it inherently is precluding the Kol Sheinu the 10th inherently precludes the 11th from being Meiser, and that's why the Gemara applies the principle in that case. So that seems to be what Rab Chaim's circle's answer was back, that Meiser too is a case where it inherently precludes the 11th from being Meiser. Rabbi Zeltzer has a short tshuva that he wrote back to Rab Moshe Soloveitchik, and he basically complains 
that what difference does this make? Even if you say that the Torah said a shiur, that only the tenth can be meiser, but either way, it's not inherently contradicting that the eleventh could be meiser. It's just once the tenth is meiser, so then the eleventh can't be meiser anymore. But to say that they're inherently contradicting each other seems a stretch. So uh, this is an interesting discussion that goes back and forth. It seems to be a debate between the school of Rab Chaim and the school of the Chazonish, how we view meiser behema. Is it an inherent contradiction? Or is it just practically that the animal has to be meiser on something? So if it's the first in the lineup in the new counting, so then it can't be meiser. And uh, to fit Rab Chaim's idea into the Gemara, so uh, some of the brisker figures are saying that meiser is an inherent contradiction. The Torah said that only the tenth can be, but not the eleventh. Now, the second major issue, which is also discussed, is more fundamental to the whole issue of Hakama and Hafara. And the Chazon Ish, in his comments, does a nice job presenting the alternative to Rab Chaim's approach. And he makes three points. He says, first of all, Rab Chaim's whole distinction that Hafara doesn't accomplish anything inherently, meaning the husband could change his mind after, it just makes it that there's no neder over here, as opposed to hakama, which in its essence is that the husband can no longer change his mind. So the Chazunish says that's not clear, because it could be that hafara is also in its essence that the Torah said that if the husband annuls this vow, then he can no longer change his mind. Even if the vow would still be around, in a theoretical case, still the husband is unable to change his mind after hafara because it works the same way as Hakama. So that's the Chazonisha's first point, that it's not clear that this distinction has to be. So whereas Rab Chaim defined Hafara as just removing the neder from the world, Chazonish says that maybe Hafara is the same way Rab Chaim defined Hakama, that it's a decision which can't be retracted once it's made. And then he even offers somewhat of a proof to this because he says if a person was able to do hakama after hafara, even theoretically, so then the neder should remain somewhat relevant because maybe the husband is going to do hakama. In other words, Rab Chaim's whole idea is that hafara removes the neder totally, but says the Chazonish, if the husband's able to change his mind and do hakama, then the neder should be around with regard to that. It should be waiting to see if the husband does hakama on this neder. So uh, that's the Chazonish's argument almost internally in Rab Chaim's approach that why in fact should the neder disappear if there's a theoretical possibility that the husband could do hakama still. And then his final point is, he says that hafara is an annulment of the neder. In other words, Rab Chaim keeps implying that hafara, the husband doesn't actually go directly against the neder, he just removes it almost indirectly. But this says the Chazonish that the husband with hafara is actually going directly against the neder. He's annulling the neder. So that is a direct contradiction to the concept of hakama, where he establishes and affirms the neder. So those two things, hakama and hafara, are in contradiction to each other. So that's an interesting side debate, how to understand hafara. According to Rab Chaim, it's more indirect. The husband removes the neder from the situation, whereas according to the Chazonish, it's a direct confrontation with the neder that the, the husband directly goes against it by annulling it. Now, Rav Shach in the Avi Ezri, 
Gadri has a piece where he seems to take the Chazonish's conceptual ideas and he tries to fit them back into Rab Chaim's overall approach. So it's sort of a combination of both Rab Chaim and the Chazon Ish, and it would resolve some of the Chazonish's conceptual issues with Rab Chaim's approach to resolving the Rambam. So I'm not going to get into that, but anyone that wants to look at that can check in the Aviezri. Now, one last point on this issue. Uh, Rabbi Shlomka Berman in the Asher Shlomo, that was the Stipler's son-in-law, and he was very close with the Chazon Ish. He was a Rosh Hashiva and Panovich, so he came from the Chazonisha circles. So in the volume on Nidarim, on Dafsanach Tesamud Beis, it's Simon Tesavav, he has a very nice discussion of this whole issue, and he goes through a lot of the issues that we raised and makes new points. But he has a very fascinating point that he raises. The halacha is that if a girl is engaged, so she's not married yet, so both the father and the arus, her fiancé, both have to do hafara to get rid of the nether. So what would happen in a case where, let's say, the father did hafara and the arus did hakama? It could be the opposite. It doesn't matter either way. But just to make it clear, let's choose that way. So now the father's hafara is only half a hafara. What would happen if the father changes his mind and then does hakama? So he points out that according to Rab Chaim, that ha- new hakama should work because Rab Chaim said that hafara doesn't inherently preclude a future hakama. It just removes the neder from the situation. But in this unique case where she's engaged, so the father is not able to totally remove the neder by himself, so the neder is still in the world, and according to Rab Chaim, he should be able to change his mind and then do hakama, and together with the since they both did hakama, so then there would be a full hakama. But Rabbi Shlomka Berman points out that there are certain sources which seem to indicate that even in that case, the father cannot change his mind after doing a hafara. So that would seem to be a bit of a problem with Rab Chaim's approach. So this is some of the discussion that goes on about Rab Chaim's definitions of hafara and hakama, and specifically the distinction he makes between those two. So that's the end of our discussion of the discussion on Rab Chaim's approach. I'm going to end off with two other approaches which are unrelated to Rab Chaim, but since we're learning this Rambam, it's worth seeing what other commentators have to say. One is an earlier approach from the Radvaz and the Kesef Mishnah, two of the classic commentators on the Rambam. The Radvaz doesn't even seem to think that this is a problem. He thinks that the obvious reading of the Gemara and that this is how Rashi read it and the Rashi claims also read it this way is that when the Gemara applied the principle of Kol She'en it meant only that the hafara is not going to take effect. But the simple reading is like the Rambam that the hakama would take effect. Now, he doesn't explain why that should be, why the rule of Kol Sheinu shouldn't apply to the hakama either. But the Kesef Mishnah seems to add or to work in the same approach, and he does offer a reason. He says that since the stringency the Chumrah would be that the Hakama takes effect. So since we're not sure what to do over here, instead of going Lakula and being lenient, instead we lean Lakhumrah, and that means that the Hakama takes effect. But the Kasavishna adds, this doesn't mean that it's a suffix, that it's an uncertain Hakama, because the husband or the father only have the day that they hear it 
in order to do hafara. But once that day passes, so then it's automatically mikuyam. So that would be the same in this situation. Since there's a questionable hakama, they're not able to do hafara any longer. So once the day passes, so then the hakama takes effect, not as a suffix, not as an uncertainty, but as a vaday. Now, the Machne Ephraim in Hilch Nadarim Simen Lamed Ches, so he asks the obvious question, which is why can't the husband or the father still do hafara during that day? And then that would change the equation. So he has his own approach. So that's the uh, basic approach of some of the earlier commentators. Now, there is another approach in the Achronim, and this is the answer that Ar Sameach has. And also the Dvar Avram and Chelek Aleph Simon Tess Zion, he quotes that he heard the same answer from Rabbi Yushola Kutner. And their approach is that based on the halacha, that Hakama believe, if you just think the Hakama, it takes effect, whereas Hafara believe doesn't work, it has to be spoken. So based on that, they suggest that since he did it at the same time, so the words all cancel each other out. So the words of the Hakama and the words of the Hafara are all canceled out, but there remains his intention, his thought. So that is only relevant for the Hakama because Hakama believe could work, but Hafara believe doesn't work. So that's why the Hakama takes effect because the thought of the Hakama is not negated by the thought of the Hafara. So therefore the Hakama does take effect. So that's a nice approach, but there's two big problems with it. First, the Orsameach and the Dvar Avram themselves already ask that it seems that since he spoke the Hakama and the Hafara, so he didn't intend to do it believe. In other words, the only time it would work believe is when you don't say it, so the intention was to do it believe. But once a person said it, so then the believe, the thought of it has no more strength to take effect over here because they are themselves showing that they want this to be done with speaking and not believe. So that's problem number one. Uh, also, Rab Shlemka Berman points out that there's a second problem, which is the same way that his saying the hafara negated the speaking, the words of the hakama. So in the same way, the speaking, the hafara should also negate the hakama believe. In other words, we don't look at it as the words cancel each other out and the believe remains, but the, the speaking of the hafara should be able to cancel both the words and the thought of the hakama. So that's a second approach in the achronim and some problems with that. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forest Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations.